Osiris. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, it's Zach here. If there's one thing that's most difficult about recording a podcast on the road as a touring musician, it's probably finding a quiet place to record it in the first place. Oftentimes when I meet musicians at festivals or at venues, we have to kind of sneak around and find a place to make our voices be heard. And uh, I wanted to stop you. If you haven't listened to the first part of the Dom Flemons interview, stop what you're doing, go back and check it out. He's got so much history and so much insight to give us. And uh, I'm really happy that we can split this up and give you the second half right now. So enjoy Dom Flemons part two. So let's go back a little bit. So you you go to college in Flagstaff. Mm -hmm. You're busking on the street. Yeah. Uh, But something really changes for you when you go to the Black Banjo Gathering at Appalachian State in 2005. Uh, You meet Rhiannon Giddens Mm -hmm. and the sort of seed of the Carolina Chocolate Drops forms. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that time a little bit. Well, right before the gathering... So I'm busking and I'm doing I'm just learning songs and things like that, just kind of formulating my style. I will mention to all the younger musicians, don't give away your process. Please give yourselves ten years to and don't tell anybody anything about what you're playing. I'm really fortunate in that way that I I just experimented, learned songs and just did stuff and didn't try to get big with it. And I was able to break down my style quite a few different times to get to the place where when I went to the gathering I was feeling very confident with how I was wanting to present my music how I wanted to talk about it and how I wanted to do it and one of the things that had really drawn me in was uh, this sort of uh, this sort of uh, style of musician the songster that was sort of on the fringes of a lot of blues scholarship and these were people like Lead Belly Papa Charlie Jackson Henry Thomas and folks like that and they played sort of broader black folk music, but they they had blues within their repertoire. So that idea always interested me because I was able to find points of connecting into other parts of folk music uh, uh, scholarship and whatnot through these singers. So I, I took on the moniker of the American Songster. And in 2005, uh, I had met a fellow by the name of Sule Greg Wilson, and um, he was a part of a, a Yahoo listserv called... 
black banjo players then and now, which was a forum trying to just get people together to talk about African-American banjo, string band music, any, any of the scholarship related to it. Because at that time, it wasn't, rare, it wasn't known that the banjo was African or African-derived in the popular uh, mainstream culture. Like people like Pete Seeger have been saying this since the very beginning. Like if you read one of Pete's books, that's the first thing he says. The banjo's African and he explains it and then he moves on to the next thing. But as a whole, people just didn't have that in their minds. And so Sule was part of a collective of people that was trying to get younger African-American musicians playing the music and also to uh, expand the scholarship. And so he met me because he had heard that I was playing around Phoenix and I played the banjo by that point. And so uh, he mentioned the Black Banjo Gathering to me, and um, I was able to scrounge up enough money to get on a flight because I didn't have money at that time. I, I scrounged up for a flight, got out to Boone, North Carolina, went to the gathering, and I was just blown away by uh, all of the different facets of this early banjo history and seeing that it was still a fairly new scholarship um, in the academic field, I just knew that that was where I needed to go. Because, of course, after college, you wonder, well, what am I going to do next? And thankfully, this beautiful mission got laid in front of me to help uh, create awareness and to also use my knowledge of jug band music and all these other types of music that I picked up in my journeys to contextualize African-American string band music. So I met Rhiannon. Uh, I didn't meet Justin Robinson right then, but uh, Sule, Rhiannon, and myself started a group called Sankofa Strings, and Sankofa is an Ashanti proverb that Sule taught to us, um, which means go back and fetch it. It's, um, it means take the lessons from the past, bring that into the present, that'll lead you into the future. And to me, that's what I always thought folk music was all about, you know, was taking the old things, refashioning them, and that, that, you know, inherently leads you into the future. And so we started that group, and I moved out to North Carolina shortly after that because I, I graduated from college a couple months after the gathering, and then sold everything I owned. As an English major, you had plenty of job prospects. Yeah, know? so I needed some money, so I sold everything I owned, and then I just drove straight out to North Carolina. No no plan except to find the music, and so I just uh, just dug in, and uh, we started the Carolina Chocolate Drops as our sort of North Carolina half of Sankofa Strings, mm. uh, focusing on the music of uh, Joe Thompson, an African-American string band musician, a fiddler, who we'd all met at the gathering. Um, also, Mike Seeger was someone I met at the Black Banjo Gathering, so I started visiting him in Lexington, Virginia. So that was indispensable. I got to talk to one of the major scholars, and uh, I call it the Weird Instrument Club, but one of the presidents of the Weird Instrument Club, he played Jews Harp and uh, Lap Dulcimer and the you know uh, Auto Harp, you know all these odd folk instruments, and the quills as well. I learned the quills from Mike, and so. There was uh, those two things happening. I also met the folks at Music Maker Relief Foundation, and I started working with their uh, elder Southern uh, musicians and began to learn how to play Southern music from these people directly as I was living in North Carolina. So I was living in the South, understanding the South on a cultural level, because it's true. I'm from the city, too. So at first, I kind of was like, why are y'all talking about plowing mules and stuff like that? Yeah. You know, like, what? I, I couldn't relate, because that was like something that my grandfather ran away from yeah. was to get away from plowing a mule so to me it seemed really backward to even think about countrified living but in the south the, the country and the city are very close to each other especially in north carolina and south carolina north carolina is interesting because they um they didn't have a full-on plantation system like south carolina and, and you can still see the remnants of that 
that type of culture in South Carolina. North Carolina, I call it like the South Light, you know, because it was a lot smaller plantations. There was a lot more uh, cultural interaction happening in the Piedmont due to the tobacco um, industry at that time. You know, Winston-Salem cigarettes come from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I mean, people were were all about the the commerce of picking tobacco and all that stuff. So that was kind of like the the older culture. So it led to a different type of music, and I was drawn into that. Elizabeth Cotton and uh, I mean Etta Baker's music. Um, then I met John D. Holman, Boo Hanks, uh, who I recorded a record with, and through Music Maker, I was able to really craft my own individual style in a way that was very organic. And so over time, I just kept up with my my same pursuits and and started to build a repertoire. And, uh, but there was something special about this uh, short period, I guess, I th- feel like 2005, 2000, maybe 12, wherever. It's partially where, when I started going more acoustic and, and, and wanting to be able to play early pre-war music, but as a young person with a kind of more spirited take on it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And you guys, you know, in Carolina Chocolate Drops kind of gave permission to a lot of people to be like, oh, these guys are cool, and they're like, you know, you guys toured with Bob Dylan that's and, right, and uh, right. you know Taj Mahal and yeah. folks, and it was like you guys were on the Grand Ole Opry, but also like playing rock clubs. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and like Rhiannon was playing like Beyonce covers. Yeah, and it was yeah. like this is awesome. You know, <laughs> I saw you out in L.A. when I first moved here, opening for Josh Ritter. Oh yeah, but also I went the next day with a friend and saw you in the little like kids show outside. Disney Hall. Yeah, uh-huh. You were playing, and we were the only, like, besides parents and their kids, we were like, why isn't anyone here? Like, this is awesome. And oh, it's that's free. It was, like, funny. free, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, because it was, and, and just so people know, this was, like, uh, at Disney Music Hall, and it was, like, must have been, like, 3,000 kids, too. It was, like, it was a it was a massive show. I mean, it, it, that's funny. I, I didn't know you, you'd gone to that one. Well, it was one of those things where I had sort of gotten into you guys and then most of the time you're like well they're always going to be on the east coast and then mm-hmm. the time that you guys came out here was like a special thing yeah you know, it was awesome you know yeah. and then but you guys were demonstrating how to do the jug uh-huh. and the bones yeah yeah uh, can you show us the bones right now oh sure yeah and and it's funny with that sort of stuff you know I, getting permission to to rock out I, I i do have to blame old crow medicine show for giving me the caveat to do that type of intense old time music because at that time so you have to imagine this is right before myspace came out so all sort of music business had to be gone through the proper channels and so people like old crow medicine show really had this grassroots following that blew up especially once wagon wheel became an international hit and I had been playing a lot of this stuff, but when uh, their album OCMS came out, I heard it in like a listening station. It must have been like a Barnes and Noble or something. I was just, I saw the picture. I said, okay, these guys seem cool. And I listened to it and I said, oh, it's finally on. You can finally play this type of music and it can be accepted. And that, to me, was something I held on to. And then, oh, Brother Wart, that was something in the background. And I always reference Tom Waits, because this is when he was doing the album Real Gone and doing really, like, esoteric folk-type music. Love that record, yeah. Johnny Cash was doing the American recording. So there yeah. was a lot of acoustic music yeah. that was growing at that time before... Because before it was, like, when Sheryl Crow did, like, Strong Enough to Be My Man, that would be the only time you'd hear acoustic music. It'd right. be like when a rock star put their big electric guitar and band down and did a ballad. It'd be like 
That was kind of pop. Or like the MTV Unplugged stuff. Oh, MTV Unplugged was another Like example. Honestly, like Nirvana's Unplugged in New York was yes. one of my first records I ever bought and I wore out. Yeah. And him playing like, the Lead Billy song. That's right. And I didn't even know that was a Lead Billy song, mm, but I was like, yeah. there's something about this song that right. is my favorite music. I don't even know why I like it this much. Exactly. And there was something that about Kurt Cobain's mournful sort of howl, yeah. you know, the soul, soul angst that he had, yeah. you know, that was like, he gets this somehow, and mm-hmm. I want to know more about this. And then you hear all these different versions of that song, you know, my girl, my girl, where have you gone? Yeah. And then earlier versions, black girl, black girl, mm-hmm. where have you gone? You know, and sort of it keeps evolving through time into, for a moment in time, this pop hit almost. Yeah, you know, exactly. Which is fascinating. And sure. yeah, in that period when Carolina Chocolate Drops first started coming out and you had the Grammy winning record, mm-hmm, yeah. Genuine Negro Jig, Jig yeah, mm-hmm. that was like, again, oh, looks like it's actual top of the pop charts for a yeah. second. And then it kind of ebbs away again, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And a lot of us bands right now are, are all almost going electric at the same time. Uh-huh. Yeah. And thankfully you are not. <laughs> well, you know, that one of the things, again, being a, a someone who's been deep into a lot of the music, I've tried my best not to get caught up into the, the late 60s pitfall. Like Incredible String yeah. Band in that era, I listened to all those records. So I, and I get where they're at and I love those records, but I don't, feel like I don't feel obligated to have to follow that path and to me having met Mike Seeger and all those guys I I found that I'm one of the few guys that does a couple of these styles but just to show off the bones a little bit because yeah once uh what are these made out of these are made out of cow rib bones and uh, when you like uh, when you see a picture of them at some point I, I have uh, quite a few pictures of these bones specifically one set are short ribs and they kind of get a lower tone because the marrow is out. So, and the other set I have are shin bones that have the marrow in. So shin bones are a little uh, has a more of a clicky sound. So I started playing uh, drums in in uh, grade school. So percussion was has always been a part of my my music. So this. This was one of my first entrances into North Carolina music. I went to the Fiddler's Convention Mount Airy in Mount Airy, North Carolina. That's where uh, Mayberry from Andy Griffith's show is based off of. And they have a Fiddler's Convention at the first weekend in every June. And I was over there with the Chocolate Drops, and a woman came up to me after we had performed. We did a, our first CD release party there. And this, um, this woman came up and just said, you got to learn how to play the bones. They're part of the tradition. You have to learn these these uh, you have to learn these things, and I said, okay, well, I'll give it a shot. And I've, then, since then, I've carried them all around the world, experimenting and finding different sounds. So, I'll show you just a couple of real basic uh, patterns, just because since people can't see, because uh, you can whip up some crazy magic and rhythm with these. So, we'll start off with something real simple, like um, so. That's a four beat. Okay. I'm using my shin bones now to lead. Now the rib bones leading. 
So, Carolina Chocolate Drops go for about, what, six, seven years or so? About nine all together. Nine years. So, you did five records. Yep. And at what point did you feel like you wanted to break out on your own? Well, I've always played as a soloist from the get-go. So when I joined the group, it just happened to be a happy accident that we all had similar goals and we all wanted to get together. And that we had all gone to the gathering. We, all The original three, Justin, Rena, and myself, we all went down to Joe Thompson's house. And we'd go every Thursday, and we did that for about two and a half years. Went down every Thursday that Joe was available and, and sat down and learned his family's music. So we, we were driven by that fact alone that we were learning the repertoire of traditional music from an, a traditional African-American musician. And that was that was something that connected us. And so we started taking out on the road and, and the idea of an African-American string band and that we were playing real old-time music and not just any old-time music. This was Carolina Piedmont. So this was different than the mountain style of music, which most people hear when they hear old-time music. I wish I was a mole in the ground and stuff like that. Uh, we were playing songs like Georgia Buck and Don't Get Trouble in Your Mind that were specific to the North Carolina Piedmont, particularly in rhythm and style. Is Cornbread and Butter Beans part of that style? That, that is part of that style. That one is from song. Mount Airy as well. That comes from an obscure field recording that was done at WPAQ over in Mount Airy, North Carolina, by a group, the Carolina Sunshine Trio, that it only did it for that one recording. Uh, uh, we listened to that, and uh, we heard a group also, the Rowan Mountain Hilltoppers. Um, funny enough, there's a there's an article that came out, I think, in the New York Times on uh, old timey musicians that uh, that are done in tintypes, like uh, mm. Appalachian musicians. Amongst those musicians, there's a woman playing a washtub bass, and her name is uh, Janice. Uh, Janice Birchfield, and she ran a group, this group, the Rowan Mountain Hilltoppers, with her husband, and so. We got to be good friends with her through Mount Airy, and they they taught us how to play cornbread and butter beans. And so when we arranged these songs, it was really um, Renan and Justin were the, the string band, and I was the third element, which was jug band, fife and drum, country blues, mm. ragtime, everything else that would fit within the context of string band music. And then also I was the de facto folklorist creating context for the group. So I was a third member, but then I was also... I want to say the advocate, like sort of like a, uh, uh, ad, uh, I want to say almost like a publicist for why this string band music was important. Because at that time, people still didn't really understand well, why is this important. But if you if you create a context in which someone like Muddy Waters mm-hmm. and uh, where Muddy Waters is in Mississippi, and when he records for Alan Lomax in the '40s, he's a part of a string band with a fellow by the name of Henry Sims. And so he's the hot young guitar player. And after he records for Alan Lomax, he hears himself and Mm -hmm. he says, well, dang, I sound great. So he jumps on a tractor, leaves everything behind and goes to Chicago. But um, the string band he was a part of, Henry Sims, Henry Sims had only recorded one time previous and that was with Charlie Patton. So Henry Sims played fiddle with Charlie Patton and then Muddy Waters was part of Henry Sims's string band in the 40s. And so you have this this through line of string band music that's within the history. And so for me, it was all about creating that context to say, look, you understand Carl Perkins, you understand Muddy Waters, Hal and Wolf, and if you understand that these guys have string bands in the background, mm-hmm. you've created a new bit of scholarship because a blues scholarship is based around the idea of 
field hollers, work songs, and spirituals being the root of blues. But there's no guitar in any of those styles. You might have a piano when you get to gospel, but the guitar music is the banjo music, the Piedmont guitar, the fiddle, all of that string band music is the, the extra element. Mm-hmm. And so for me, uh, folk music has been documented quite quite well. So to find a new type of folk music people mm-hmm. hadn't been aware of, it gave us a caveat to be able to uh, experiment in certain ways. Of course, when we, when we started doing hit em up style, that was an interesting experimentation where I, my banjo part, for example, was a combination of Leave and Trunk by Taj Mahal, because there's this particular, um, like there's a particular lick that's like... So there's yeah, that. So when I did a hit em up style, this is on the guitar, but it was just two chords. So I just ended up using variations on the two chords. Gonna... Let's talk about the danger of bringing a Beyonce cover into a string band old time set and how those two worlds collide because it's like people already love Beyonce's music and then you guys twist it around into this really awesome version but I remember seeing you guys open for Josh Ritter and feeling like I don't know if they should have done that because <laughs> now it's all like all we want to hear in yeah. a way because they don't know some of these older songs or your new you know sort of takes or, or reimaginings you know sure sure well that's always the danger you know it, at the time it was interesting because you know how we how we how we handled the chocolate drops material was that everybody would bring in something that they wanted to lead, and then we'd see if we could all fall into place with it. And then you know I would usually touch up the arrangement because what I was doing was I always had my my digital recorder on hand to do demos so that when we went to the next record you know to get real technical about it we'd have demos for the next record so whenever we ran into a producer and had the the opportunity come up all this I already had the songs we were currently working on and I could adjust the demo recording so that you know we would just have material you know yeah. and just just stockpiling material so that was how we handled everything so Renan had remembered it because it's technically not a Beyonce song but it was written by Dallas Austin oh, okay. who who writes all of Beyonce's material but it was from Blue Cantrell and it was a one one hit wonder, mm. and it was sort of an obscurity. But how it ended up playing out, you know, we got, we came up with a nice version, tried to do something funky with it. But that ended up hap- that ended up taking over the group in a certain way, which was really a, a shame in certain parts because um, it uh, it just exactly like you said it 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 made people want that cover more than well. The, there is a danger with I think young people playing old music that's right where it's a novelty and that's all exactly. you know we're like oh isn't this cute mm-hmm. and i'm into it for a couple of years and then I'm like yeah exactly. i'm gonna move on to the more popular music of the day yeah you know and then at the time since we as we were touring since we were in a unique position as, as being one of the first all-black string bands to be able to perform around the country and the world in, in the way that we did we tried to expand our audiences which is why we started going into a lot more of the rock clubs as well as the performing right. arts center so we tried to branch out in that way so in a certain way we're in and wanted to reach out to that broader audience to me i've always been a little bit i've always been a little hesitant to put too many well-known songs and that's always been a part of my repertoire is 
grabbing songs that are more obscure, except, of course, for the Black Cowboys, because there was a conceptual idea with some of the more well-known songs like Home on the Range and Goodbye Old Paint, which required then uh, finding unique arrangements. Well, you're maybe more of a, of, of a curator and a, and a historian and mm-hmm. a scholar yeah. than necessarily trying to be known in a larger sense. Sure, Even sure. though people, I think, do know you, but as a preserver and sort of elevator of this music. Yeah, and, and so I've always tried to keep within that, but that's also why I did my own solo records for, for a long time. I, I cut two solo records when I was in the group, I did my third solo record as I decided to leave the group because it just, uh, you know, if most bands you pull out this a big yellow pad and you write down everything you wanted to do, and we did the, we covered everything we'd ever set out to do in that group about four times over, yeah. which was really amazing. So, you know, with when I left, it was it, it was it was sad in its own way, but at the same time, we had accomplished so many of our goals that. Over time, I just don't think... We just couldn't figure out... Yeah. We couldn't agree on how we wanted to go about doing things, which yeah. which eventually led us to just all uh, go our separate ways. And, you know, in in my mind, I'd always wanted to try to figure out how to make it like a school of thought, like, or, mm. uh, you know, or even like, you know, make it like a group like the Ink Spots, where the symbolic nature of the the name could mean something but you know that was the, but that that was that was a thing i dreamed about but we did what we did and and uh with for nine years and that was that was successful in of itself and it gave people a caveat because we tried to not make it a black thing uh, holistically it was about african-american folk music but it was really about giving the people a caveat to say if you understand a certain part of the cultural history and nobody else understands it you can go out there, research, and find a lot of information that can lead you on your own path. I mean, even you know, Dust Bowl Revival, I think it's great that you guys have taken bluegrass and New Orleans jazz and, and placed that into a context that um, you know, traditionally wasn't there, but at the same time there's a musical vocabulary that does translate into a new sound, which I don't is even, cool. I don't even know what the sound is that we're doing anymore. It's like yeah. it's almost beyond my comprehension, which is kind of... Yeah fun but yeah. also scary you know? absolutely because and because there's a certain point when you just you put the elements in like a yeah. like a stew or a soup or something you know the the you know they say the sum is greater than the individual parts but like a stew you put it all in the the stew doesn't look like what it yeah. was beforehand it, it 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 turns into its own thing and you know then you leave it overnight it's actually a little bit better because everything's fermented yeah everything's kind of gotten a chance to really mix up congeal yeah that's right that's right i'm a big fan of leftovers that are cold or leak or like room temperature Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's just like the flavor is all solidified that's right that's right and and that's something that i've always i've always been i've always encouraged folks with that as well because new orleans jazz is a big part of my development as well because that's a good part of my record collection is a lot of that revival stuff from george lewis and the mm. early preservation hall jazz band and stuff and that's something i tried to incorporate a little bit into the chocolate drops but it wasn't something i could really do until i did my album prospect hill and that's why i started out with a, a big new orleans style number uh, till the seas run dry and just uh you know that, that it's that's what it's all about is is trying to create something as compelling as mm. the old stuff. I've I found that to be a new world as compelling instead mm. of because everybody gets caught up in authenticity. They get caught up in that word. What's authenticity? And that's really based on the 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 the, the performer and the audience. What is, that's authenticity when those two agree what they're supposed to be hearing. But it's kind of a superfluous 
category, but fi- trying to make a, a song that is just as compelling as the old stuff has always been key to me. Mm-hmm. Like, would I be able to listen to this if I listened back to this? You know, you have to really get deep into the mind and remove yourself as the performer, but you have to say, okay, if I got a burned copy of this CD, no label, no context, could I listen to this and in my harshest moments, mm. would I like it? And that's and I treat all of my records like that because, mm. you know, once as you know, once you hit go, the record is done, and everything up to that point can be changed. Technically, you can say, "Let's do that vocal again. Let's do another take. Let's do anything or design wise." You say, "Nope, different picture, whatever it is." But once you hit play, if there's a little that's why the recording process for me has never been a super pleasurable one, especially like a full studio album yeah. like we just finished for Dust Bowl Revival. Because yeah. I'm like, in back of my mind, the music is so important to me that I'm like, God, I don't want to mess this up because I'm going to be hearing my yep. damn voice singing this in some version for the rest of my damn life. <laughs> right. right? And, but when I re-listened to the like the mixes a couple days ago, I was like, you sound great. Like, awesome. you, like, like, like you sound fine. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. in the studio, I was like, oh, God, I don't know if this really felt really good. I felt like, was I trying too hard? Was I not trying hard enough? That's was right. I Was I really pushing it? Was I, uh-huh. was I, should I lay back? You know? Yeah, yeah. And eventually, you're just like, just sing the song from that's the right. heart. Like, yeah. what else are you going to do? Absolutely. I mean, that's always a great thing when you look listen back to the roughs and you're like, okay, we accomplished, we accomplished what we set out because, of course, a recording and... All you can try to do is capture a moment to where it sounds fresh enough to where it doesn't sound like you just learned it, but it sounds polished enough to where it sounds like everybody's been, is right in line. But even stuff, I listen to some classic recordings, like I even listen to like, like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan's a perfect example. The band and Bob Dylan mess up on, toward the last verse, I think. And like Dylan jumps ahead and the band falls back, but then they like smash together yeah. by the end of the chorus, and it's just brilliant. But it's holding on by just yeah. just this. But li- that sort of looseness is yeah. kind of what made the band yeah. and him sort of so special. Yeah, and it know? makes it compelling, you know, because it's, it's like, like dangerously like almost not cohesive. Yeah. And you're like, damn, this sounds good anyway. So yeah, like honky tonk piano next to organ with. Yeah. The, I think they had the three guitar players. I think it was like Bruce Langhorn and Mike Bloomfield and yeah. maybe Elvin Bishop, I think. But it was like, it's a just, oh, what a beautiful lineup. But that's, that's something that you try to do. You try to, you try to make recordings that are compelling to people. And that's, that's part of, um, you know, like for, that's why I started the, the Black Cowboys record with, um, with Black Woman. I thought that, that um, at the end of the day, I thought a, a small a cappella song would be a great, compelling way to begin this epic black cowboys journey and it ended up being a really wonderful way to get people into it i mean look the problem with you being a scholar and a uh, historian of sorts is that i you i think elevate a lot of music by other people and their stories but we don't necessarily get to hear about you enough and that's why we're going to go to our next segment Call mom because if there's one person who really knows Dom Flemons, it's probably your mom. Oh yeah, I would definitely say that's my mom. You know, she's. Let's, uh, let's get her on the phone. Yeah, let's let's do it. I mean, normally you'd be far across the country from her traveling with your guitar and your banjo, except that she's also just across LA right now. <laughs> yeah, it, it, which can feel like a faraway place, though. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, especially when driving when that you hit that traffic. Should I just call her right on the line here? Yeah. And then just I'll just go speakerphone yeah. with it. What's your mom's name? My mom's name is Darina. Darina Flemons. What did she do when you were growing up? 
When I was growing up, my dad and my mom both worked at Sky Harbor Airport. My mom was a ticket agent in Phoenix. Uh, yeah, for TWA. So they rest uh, in peace. TWA. Yeah, I know, and that's and she was part of TWA until the very end. And uh, my dad was a sky cap for um, oh wow for uh, a lot of years. He was a basketball player though. He was kind of like a, he helped integrate the the. Uh, the basketball team at Northern Arizona University oh, wow. in 1968. So he he has this really interesting story. My mom also has a really interesting story as well. Of because uh, I'm a sixth generation Phoenix native, and my wow. mom's side of the family goes back to my great great grandfather. They were all miners. I just found out from my grandmother that they were all miners, and there's this elaborate history of what were they we, mining? Gold or uh, copper? Silver and tin oh. and copper. And so what they now if. If you've ever been around Phoenix of maybe uh, 10 years ago, they still had orange orchards in mm. a part of the, yeah. the south, southern east side. But that was for the miners because they found they were getting scurvy. So they hired all these Mexican workers to build these uh, orange uh, groves. And so they brought in um, workers and miners. And it was a combination of uh, it was, it was Mexican, German, mm. Italian... And you have Mexican and heritage in your family, right? That's right. That's my and this is my mom's side. Oh. Did your mom and dad listen to different music? A like, little bit. Uh, by the time I was growing up, they listened to more or less the same stuff. But um, when I got my hand on their speak of the devil, it's oh, my mom. Calling. Oh, <laughs> hey, mom. Hi. You're How are you? good. You're on the podcast again since you called me during a, a taping. What are you doing today? That's not actually how my dad talks, but uh, he's a man of many voices. <laughs> That's how you're supposed to talk when you come back from Florida. No, no, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, I'm gonna, how are you? What would you like to know? Uh, nothing really. I, I think uh, I think I'm going to have to call you back because we're going to talk to a wonderful artist, Dom Flemons' mom. Because uh, we're doing the, the segment now, Call Mom. You know, because I love it. Maybe in June for Father's Day, we'll do call Dad. You know. Sure, why not? My <laughs> phone is open for all calls anytime. All right, there you have it. My parents in the car that's coming from it, Florida. That's the wind up. So long, everybody. <laughs> I'm gonna talk to you later. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Going up from Florida. Because I feel like my dad and my mom had unique sort of musical input on my brain. You know, my dad, oh, the yeah. rock and roll and the blues stuff. My mom, the folky singer-songwriter thing. And it kind of was all gelled in my brain now, you know. Yeah, when I, well, let me think. When I think back on it, like, nope. Let's see. Let's ask her now. Hello? Okay. To to you put your daughter on too. All right. Yeah. Well, it's is a uh, is Cheyenne right there or is she gone? She's gone. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hold your daughter. Right, uh, she's a uh, 14 months. Okay? All right. That sounds good. Yeah, we're okay. gonna we're gonna switch over to my mom now. My my wife's passing it off to her. Hi. Hey, mom. Hey, Dominic. I'm here. So you are on the show in the road podcast on our call mom segment because we we need to know more about Dom from the real source of the matter, you know? Yes, I think that would be a pretty good source of 
What is what is the first music you remember him connecting to? Dominic was always musical. Um, he was always involved in high school band, and um, he even went to uh, NAU to a couple of the uh, couple of years. Did it too, Dominic, in the summer? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I went Did up to the band music camp. There, you were involved. For, you're a four-year Letterman uh, music in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your younger years you just were gravitated to music and were always bringing home instruments and everything you know other than through the band you are self-taught which is amazing to me the harmonica your guitars your banjos you never had any uh, training other than your musical talent you didn't want him to play classical music like my parents children to do what they felt was good for them you're a good mom yeah <laughs> thank you yeah best do you remember playing music when he was in the womb that he was rocking out to in the womb we always had motown going on marvin gay all of them <laughs> tell him about the no, cat we, had, we mainly had motown going on in our home it's always a smart um, move so how he trailed into the type of music that he loves now um, is definitely was his own choice. It wasn't anything that we mainly played at home, but yet he was influenced by his father, Charlie Daniels, um, that he would listen to. So I had to make sure of both of them. Um, and me being uh, Mexican-American, I really, we really didn't play um, Hispanic music at home, though. But I didn't grow up with it either, though. Yeah, you grew up with jazz with Nana and Grandpa. A lot. And we, we went to a lot of Vegas. Um, uh, we were always in Vegas for the summer for an entire week. I remember my sisters and I, uh, we were staying at the Flamingo Hotel, and we went every night to see the Mills Brothers and Gladys Knight. Nice. Oh, yeah. I would, I would have liked my mom to bring, bring me to that. And then, Mom, you played the castanets, too. He just had me playing the bones, so I, I always get a laugh out of that. Yeah, I, I was a flamenco dancer and uh, part of a little group and tour that we danced in uh, Phoenix. Uh, my teacher, Laura Moya, which was interesting because she was a Jewish woman who was a flamenco dancer from Spain. <laughs> <laughs> So, the, so performing is in his genes. She just recently passed away a couple years ago, but she was in her 90s, and I believe she was dancing all the way up until her 80s. Wow. Was he a good kid, or would he uh, was he a bit of a troublemaker? Dominic was a good kid. <laughs> I never had any problems with him. You, you don't have um, to hold back. And with his brother, <laughs> I think they had one dispute when they were about, uh, they are two years apart, when they were about maybe, Six, eight, uh, one fight. We separated them, made them go into their rooms, and uh, that was the only fight they ever had. So, only you know, one fight. Were, he was an excellent kid. <laughs> Always, yeah, you didn't have any problems with him. <laughs> like now. <laughs> I appreciate that, Mom. <laughs> when he's when when he's traveling on the road, you know, hundred days a year you know, going into all these strange small towns and bars. Is there is there something as a mom that you worry about most? I always worry 
not necessarily about the venues that he goes to, but mainly with the travel, the driving, the weather, um, at times the hours that he is out on the road doing it. Uh, but as far as the venues, no. Um, someone is just very likable person. I would feel even in a venue that might be intimidating, he just comes in and just has a calming effect on people. So even if something were disrupting, I think that he would come in and just start talking or singing a song and calm things down. He's a pretty charming guy. <laughs> if, as a mom, what would you want for him most? You know, what is what is your big dream for him? Um, continue with his dream and his love of music. Family, number one, is very important to all of us. Um, and just that he follows his own dream. I, I don't have a dream for him. He has his own. Mm. I'm just here to be a part of what he's living and what he is doing and enjoying. As a parent, this is what you do. You bring up your child so that they can grow. And you and all you can do is just be a part of their growth and enjoy it. That's what I think that people don't appreciate is that I think those of us who have made performing and, and traveling, making music our life, really only are able to do that a lot of times because of the sort of support and very early encouragement of our parents and the people around us because it's like it's a pretty crazy life that you choose and I think like if you have parents that are like no you have to do your dream not like maybe do your dream while you have a day job or whatever it's like you have to do it and I'm behind you you know that's right and you can see it if you were trying to tell them don't do it how unhappy that person would be yeah and I wouldn't want that for them. Not, not at all. That would, that would not be my dream for them. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could talk. Thank you for being on the show. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate you uh, enjoying my son. He is an interesting person. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, son. I'll talk to you later. And thank you so much. All right. Love you, Mom. Okay. Love you, too. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. That was sweet. Should we, uh, should we do a song? Oh, sure. This is one that I've been doing a lot recently. This is one of the original songs from the Black Cowboys. and In a sort of abstract way, I tried to touch upon a couple of stories that moved me. There was the story of, of Nat Love, or Nate Love, the Black Cowboy known as Deadwood Dick. And he was one of the only black cowboys to make his own autobiography. And so I was, I was drawn into his story because he was born into slavery and then became a cowboy after emancipation. And then he became a Pullman porter working on the railroad line. And I thought that was interesting because I was looking for relevance with all this history of uh, ancient black cowboys trying to figure out how to make it relevant. Because at the end of the day, people got to say, well, what's this have to do with me? But the, when I started finding this connection to the Pullman porters, their role in, in the forming of modern African-American culture is, is an essential piece of the puzzle. And so I thought about that. And then I wanted to reference an old town in northern Arizona called Holbrook, Arizona, where my father's father started a church many years ago. So here's a little bit of Steel Pony Blues.
down to Holbrook. You won't find me there, good Lord. I caught the first thing smoking down the road somewhere. Called the first thing smoking down the road somewhere. Cause I called my steel pony and boys, I'm going to ride. I'm getting far too old to follow this year herd. Good Lord, I caught the first thing smoking down the road somewhere. Thing smoking down the road somewhere. Cause I call me steel pony and boys, I'm going to ride. Now they call me Mr. Flemings. Cause I'm a pool porter now Good Lord, I caught the first thing smoking Down the road somewhere Called the first thing smoking Down the road somewhere Cause I called my steel pony And boys, I'm going around Go ahead and get it one time, six Smoking down the road somewhere. Now, when you get over there, you won't find me. Cause I called the steel pony and boys, I'm going to ride. Get it one last time, six. Say, Mr. Z. Tom Flemings, everyone. Give it up. There you have it, Mr. Dom Flemings. You can find his music and his tour dates at theamericansongster.com. And uh, his newest record, which we talked about, is called Black Cowboys. It's off Smithsonian Folkways. And um, there's a really cool piece at thebluegrasssituation.com, Shout and Shine, about him putting together uh, the songs of Black Cowboys. And there's also a video on there 
of him playing the song you heard at the end of this episode, Steel Pony Blues. He's got some really cool shows coming up in France and in Spain and then uh, back home in the States and Chicago and uh, Wisconsin. So please look out for him on the road. And uh, he is a really charming dude. So say hi to him if you see him. Do me a favor. If you like what you've been hearing on this show and uh, maybe you discovered your favorite new artist, tell a friend about it. Write a review on iTunes. Spread the word. It's the way that we can uh, get this music out into the universe. Slowly, the weather is getting warmer this spring, which must mean I'm about to head out on the road with my crew, the Dust Bowl Revival, to play some festivals. Uh, We'll be in Washington, D.C. on the 4th of May playing the Kingman Island Folk Fest. And uh, we're also going to be back in D.C. August 30th playing Appaloosa Music Fest. So that's going to be fun. Uh, We just announced we will be playing the Red Ants Pants Music Fest in White Sulphur Springs, Montana in July 28th. I love the name of that fest. And another good one, the Porcupine Mountains Music Fest in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in August. You never know which artists I might meet at these places, and uh, there's going to be a lot of really cool episodes coming up, so stay tuned. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast.